Welcome to the Faith in Maine podcast. I'm Katie Clark, your host. We are sharing stories of life and faith and ministry across our 57 churches, 18 summer chapels, Camp Bishopswood, three Jubilee centers, and ministries that make up the Episcopal Diocese of Maine. We are hard at work on a new series of podcasts for you in 2022 and are looking forward to sharing those with you soon. In this episode, we are bringing you a special presentation of a recent webinar hosted by the Racial Justice Council and the Committee on Indian Relations of the Episcopal Diocese of Maine. This was a public forum entitled Restoring Wabanaki Tribal Sovereignty and was in support of LD 1626, an act implementing the recommendations of the Task Force on Changes to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. Molly and Dana, Ambassador of the Penobscot Nation, was the keynote speaker. The Right Reverend Thomas J. Brown, Bishop of Maine, offered the opening prayer. What is LD 1626? You'll learn much more in this podcast, but in short, if passed, LD 1626 will restore to our Wabanaki neighbors their inherent sovereignty over the territories. Maine is the only state in the nation which blocks such sovereignty, denying the Wabanaki tribes and peoples the benefit of over 150 federal laws and hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funds that respect and protect the rights of the 570 other federally recognized tribes in the United States. Please enjoy this podcast and head over to the Episcopal Maine website at episcopalmaine.org and click on Ministries to learn more about our advocacy and social justice work in the Episcopal Diocese of Maine. Friends, welcome. We're going to begin with prayer. Holy God, earth maker, pain bearer, lover and guide of all, we gather today committed to a lifelong journey toward your reign of justice. We hold before our eyes the history of your first people to dwell in this part of your earth. We are grateful for the people of the dawn. And we hold before our eyes the ways that we have mistreated and stole. So we come in confession and resolution to live differently, more like you tend and you desire. We shall not settle, O oh God, for low and little things. But with your guidance and mercy, we shall reach for high and holy things. I need you to go, yeah. So Take away disappointments and hurt, especially the ones that have led us into the temptation of thinking that we're not able to do the things that our Lord Jesus Christ has given us to do. We hear his call, and because we are confident of his capacity to remake creation and all of us, we ask now for your grace as we respond, as we listen, and as we unite in bonds of affection and solidarity. We long to do the best we can to care as much as we can for as many as we can. And so with the psalmist we sing, right living and whole living shall embrace and kiss. Truth sprouts green from the ground and you, O oh God, give goodness and beauty and your land responds with bounty and blessing. And in all of it, right living, that is the beauty. It's our way, and you are right now clearing a pathway for us to walk. So we praise you, we bless you, and we give thanks to you this day and always. Amen. Thank you, Bishop Brown. 
Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Carrie Manser, the rector of Christ Episcopal Church in Gardner. I'm thrilled that so many of you have joined us for this opportunity to hear more about the issue of Wabanaki sovereignty in Maine. I know that we all look forward to hearing from Ambassador Dana and the other speakers who will help us to more fully understand the current legislation being considered and the history of the relationship between state governance and the Wabanaki tribes. But first I would like to attend to some housekeeping for today's webinar. Our session today is being recorded and also live streamed on YouTube. The YouTube recording will be posted on the Episcopal Diocese of Maine's YouTube channel in the coming days. All of you who have registered will receive the link to where the recording can be found. And we hope that you will share that link with others. During the webinar, only the speakers' faces will appear on screen and all microphones except for the person speaking will be muted. We have live transcription, closed captioning available for this webinar. If you wish to access it, move your mouse to the bottom of the Zoom page, click on live transcription and choose show subtitles. If your transcription is on and you want to turn it off, click live transcription and then choose hide subtitles. We are also pleased to be able to offer American Sign Language translation. Our translators, Mara Baldage and Meryl Troop have their own screens and will take turns translating. Thank you, Mara and Meryl for offering your services today. In addition to ASL translation, it is, also it is also possible to hear the speakers today in the Passamaquoddy language. To access this translation, go to the toolbar at the bottom of the Zoom screen, select translation, then Passamaquoddy. We believe that offering the content of this webinar in the Passamaquoddy language highlights the importance of preserving native languages in Wabanaki communities. It is one small way for us to acknowledge the harm caused by the assimilation of Wabanaki peoples, including the exclusive use of the English language in churches, schools, and other institutions. We want to recognize the ongoing efforts at native language revitalization and cultural preservation, which are so important to Wabanaki communities. We would like to thank Annette Sakabasin for her translation Waliwan Annette. One more housekeeping note, we will not be using chat during the webinar. If you have a question for Ambassador Dana or the other panelists, please click the question and answer button in the toolbar at the bottom of your Zoom screen. You can enter your questions there. We will have ample time to respond to questions after the panelists speak. If you're watching on YouTube, unfortunately, you cannot access, access Zoom's Q&A function. Before I introduce Ambassador Dana, I would just like to say how pleased I am that so many of you in attendance today are representing churches that are working to faithfully respond to our state's history of injustice to the Wabanaki people and also wrestling with our particular church histories. Here at Christ Church, we recently celebrated 250 years of worshiping on the Gardner Common, and there's much to honor in our past but we know that we must also be honest about our past, even when it makes us uncomfortable. There's a great deal for us to learn about how European colonization and the taking of main lands from native peoples 
often in the name of Christianity, impacted the Wabanaki tribes. There is much work to be done. And I hope that all of us continue to take these steps of better understanding the injustices of the past and working for a more equitable future. And now I would like to introduce our keynote speaker, Ambassador Molly and Dana of the Penobscot Nation. She is the daughter of former Penobscot Chief Barry Dana and of Indian Island school teacher, Julia Sakabasin. She was born and still lives on Indian Island, the Penobscot Nation Reservation. She graduated from the University of Maine with a degree in political science in 2006. She has served as ambassador since her appointment by Chief Kirk Francis in September of 2017. She led the effort to eliminate Indian mascots in Maine schools and to gain passage of a state law banning those mascots. She also led the successful effort to change the name of the holiday on the second Monday in October from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. She has advocated on behalf of murdered and missing Indigenous women. Ambassador Dana now serves as president of the Wabanaki Alliance, an organization of the four Wabanaki tribes located in Maine, dedicated to restoring the inherent sovereignty of the tribes. The Wabanaki Alliance is working with a coalition of faith, environmental, social justice, and other organizations seeking passage by the Maine legislature of LD 1626, an act implementing the recommendations of the task force on changes to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. We are honored to have Ambassador Dana speak with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Reverend, and thank you everyone on the Episcopal Committee for all your hard work making this happen. I, I think it's um, one of the most inclusive events I've been a part of over Zoom since all this Zoom world started. I, I love all the different uh, interpretations going on. I will do my best to speak slowly. I can be a bit of a fast talker, <laughs> so I will take my time, um, you know, and inform my words in a way that'll best suit the, the translation. And, and thank you so much for, for everyone who's contributed today. That was a, a really great in, intro and I think sets the stage very well for this talk. I think the first thing I'd like to do today is to just thank you all. We had a bit of a historic week this week. We had, you know, one of the largest, most collaborative efforts to amend the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act through uh, state policy and legislation come through the Judiciary Committee this week. And we had um, historic turnout, possibly record turnout in support. And I breezed through some of the names uh, in attendance before we got started and see that a lot of you are current supporters and hopefully we have a lot of future supporters. So uh, I think what I'll do today, I'll bring you to the early 2000s <laughs> and how this bug kind of bit me and how I, I really started to learn about tribal sovereignty and a lot of efforts facing the tribes. Then we'll go back to 1980 and then we'll fast forward to today. So I will try to do that all in a way that makes sense and, and really um, 
gives us chances to reflect on, on this work we've done together recently. And, uh, you know, thanks to the committee and the other speakers today, we'll have an opportunity to talk about how we go forward from here. So when I give these kind of longer talks, I, I like to kind of set the stage with how I got interested in tribal politics. And a lot of the threads through my life uh, are very relevant to what we're going through today. So as a teenager, as it was mentioned, my father, Barry Dana, was chief of the tribe. My great aunt, Donna Loring, was representative to the legislature from the Penobscot Nation. So I got to see a few different instances where it seemed like the tribes were, were really losing a lot and that sovereignty was something kind of constantly being trampled. But I also saw some good work going on in the legislature that gave me some hope around this process. And I think a combination of all of those feelings lives in me today as well. I'll start with the, the bad news and then get to the good stuff. So when my father was chief, there was a court case. Um, it, it started with clean water standards and you know this push and pull between the federal government the tribes and the state of maine wanting to regulate the cleanliness of our water this resulted in a lawsuit from paper mills uh the, the one named in the lawsuit is great northern paper and the state of maine against the tribes uh penobscot nation and later the passamaquoddy tribes and this case boiled down to the Freedom of Information Act and what constitutes an internal tribal matter. So there was requests from the state and the paper mills to the tribes for our internal tribal documents utilizing the Freedom of Information Act. And the tribe said, no, these are council meeting minutes. These are Department of Natural Resources, um, you know, data and information. And we did not want to turn those things over. And this obviously bubbled over, went to court, and I was able to go to court um, in Portland with my father. And, you know, being 15, 16 years old, it feels like kind of a boring day at work with my dad. <laughs> and, uh, and, and little did I know what a historic day in a sad way that would turn out to be. Um, not only did the tribes lose, the judge in that case, said that they had to turn or we had to turn over those documents and until they were turned over to these paper companies who obviously have a vested interest in lower water quality standards um until these documents were turned over my father barry dana and the two passamaquoddy chiefs chief doyle and chief stevens would be sentenced to jail time also the tribes would be fined a thousand dollars per day so I remember uh, I was sitting with my grandmother who was serving on tribal council. There was a huge reaction to this ruling and they led my dad away and the other chiefs. And, and it was shocking you know, as, uh, you know, thinking court was kind of, you know, these mundane, um, legal, very, very wordy situations. Uh, this turned into to a pretty dramatic day. So following that, there was a council meeting involving the Penobscot Nation Council and the Joint Council of the Passamaquoddy Tribe. And the, I remember there was a lot of deliberation. Some people said the tribe you know, should pay these fines, the chief should go to jail, we should really make a stand here. Other people said, 
we don't know how long you know, the appeal will take. We don't know how long we can be without our chiefs or pay this amount of money. I think the money was key, you know, in that ruling. It's one thing, you know, the chiefs were all very ready to put their freedom on the line, but do we really want to bankrupt the tribes um, in this effort? So the decision was made to turn over these documents and it was done in a march for sovereignty. That's what it was called. And this march started in Norridgewock, Maine, which is the site of a historic massacre of our people. And it ended at the state house in Augusta. And I remember thinking, you know, it, it felt proud. It felt like a show of resistance. It felt like we were really standing up for something, but it also felt a whole lot like losing, uh, like compromising, like giving in. So I remember forming these thoughts at an early age that sovereignty, you know, it, it must mean a whole lot of things. It means we make our own decisions. We care for our own people. Um, it also, you know, even when you're losing, it means protecting what is most sacred. So I, I took a lot of lessons from that experience. And, and of course, we have a current lawsuit going on uh, with the state of Maine over the Health, the, the ancestral territory of the Penobscot River. So a lot of these issues are lingering still. On the flip side, <laughs> I had my aunt Donna Loring doing some really great work in the legislature. And she invited me to come testify on a bill um, by Passamaquoddy Representative Donald Soctoma. And this bill would outlaw the word, um, I don't like to say it, but I will so you know what I'm talking about, squaw as a, uh, you know, it is a racial slur against indigenous women. And this bill was called the Offensive Names Act, and it would remove this word from place names in Maine. So I remember going to the state house my first time, I think, and I saw indigenous women from every tribe, you know, everybody testified. There were stories of, you know, what we would call today kind of, um, what do you call it, passive aggressive um, uses of this word. There were stories, okay, I'm just looking in the chat to make sure it wasn't me. Um, you know, there were stories of full out hate crimes using this word and uh, the committee passed this bill through and it became law. So I have this kind of, you know, flip side to the other experience of, you know, maybe when people get together, when they tell their stories, when they share their humanity, um, things can work. You know, you, you can connect with human beings. Just making sure. Do you all want me to stop until you figure, are we good? <laughs> okay, I'll keep going. I think you should keep going. Okay, <laughs> just wanna make sure. So also around this time, um, I guess I had a busy life as a teenager. <laughs> Uh, I was watching a high school basketball game with my dad, and it was the Skowhegan Indians against the Nokomis Warriors. And both teams had fake face paint on, they had fake feathers, they were jumping around, they were really acting out their Indian mascots. And that really lit a fire in me. I thought, you know, th these are my people. I'm so proud to be an indigenous person. Those are my sacred cultural traditions and items. So, 
you know, how dare they, you know, um, people not of our culture, how dare they steal these things and use them? And I, I think, you know, that obviously started a decades long career for me that that kind of um, a great part of that journey was the law passed in Maine banning these mascots. And, and I also think it's run parallel to a lot of this work about sovereignty and self-determination. And, um, you know, people say they're separate and one's more meaningful and all this stuff, but I see everything is connected. I don't think that you can consider a group of people's full rights and equity until you are viewing them as people. So when we take away those Indian mascots and those stereotypes, when we stop celebrating the genocide of our ancestors by changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, I think that sets a very good foundation for discussing the Settlement Act and sovereignty and self-determination of tribes in Maine. So there is the early 2000s, and <laughs> we'll jump back to the 1980s and, and spring into the bill today. So you know, I was not alive in 1980, but this is a, a huge year for the tribal nations and it really sets up so much of the work we're doing right now. So I, I know that a lot of people on the Zoom have a lot of working knowledge about the land claims and, and kind of what we're trying to do to amend them. So I'll, I'll give a brief overview and then we can get into it more in the questions if there's more clarity needed. Essentially, two thirds of the state of Maine was illegally taken from the um, tribes. The, the tribes in the lawsuit are the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, and Maliseet. There's also the, the Mi'kmaq with a reservation in Maine uh, who have also certainly suffered land theft but were not involved in this settlement. So the, the Passamaquoddy tribe were the first to find these treaties and bring this claim forward. And essentially the result was a chaotic, atmosphere of the federal government and the tribes suing the state of Maine and seeking some kind of resolution to these valid claims to land. The state of Maine came into this deal as the party who had done wrong, but also the party with, I guess, a whole lot of demands about what a settlement should look like. And their philosophy was we don't want to see a nation within a nation. Now, if you are fully respecting tribal sovereignty and, and tribal nationhood, that's exactly how we should be viewed. <laughs> so this set up an immediate conflict uh, that has lasted over these 40 plus years. So the state of Maine you know, did some things in this negotiation where uh, they made sure that they were kind of the party in control um, jurisdiction wise, you know, a lot of the language relegates the tribes to municipality status. They also inserted language that would block the tribes in Maine from having access to federal legislation uh, meant to benefit tribes. So that's been a, a huge hindrance to us. So, you know, I think a lot of times these devil's advocate types will say, well, you made a deal. That's it. You know, you agree to it, period. It's over. And to that, you know, that there's, this is complicated. So you have these tribal nations who are living in a state of extreme poverty. Uh, and a lot of these reasons were not the fault of the tribes. You know, when you have this legacy of colonization, of theft of land, resources, and children, 
of attempted genocide, really, you, you don't get over all of that quickly. That takes generations to heal and, and to, you know, repair and bring back to a level where you're functioning and thriving. So the tribal leaders saw, you know, they were told that this deal was likely the best, if not the only deal they would ever get. We had um, President Carter in office with Ronald Reagan coming in after him. And, and it was, you know, thought by everyone that Reagan was not very likely to sign a settlement like this. So there's this pressure on the tribal leaders to, to take this deal, to get some land back, to get some resources into the community. And they were also told that they could amend it uh, if, if it wasn't working over time. So the bad news is a lot of it hasn't worked, but the good news is we have a way to amend it. <laughs> and that is LD uh, 1626. And LD 1626, which we just had in public hearing this past week, it started as the result of a task force. So I'll bring you to the 129th legislature, which was one legislature before the one we're currently in. And we had, you know, a, a Democrat in charge of the administration and Democrat control of the House and Senate. So a lot of lawmakers were seeing this as a chance to really do something to improve tribal sovereignty and tribal state relations. Now, my position of ambassador for our tribe only exists because tribal state relations had gotten so bad, we pulled our representative to the legislature. Um, the Passamaquoddy did as well in 2015. The Passamaquoddy have re-elected um, a representative and that's of course, Representative Rena Newell, who's doing some fabulous work in Augusta right now, and, and we'll talk more about her efforts later, I'm sure. Um, so I work every day as ambassador, knowing that the very nature of my job exists because this relationship had gotten so bad. And, you know, the elephant in the room around the, you know, turmoil and chaos in that relationship is the Settlement Act. And, uh, you know, there's litigation, there's there's different problems there that I'm sure we can flesh out together <laughs> through the questions if needed. So, you know, we we got some things done in the 129th legislature, some good things. Uh, the two bills that were mentioned about the mascots, Indigenous Peoples Day, and we had reps and senators putting bills in, you know, really looking at this tribal state relationship. And a lot of them knew that the basis for so much of the kind of dark cloud of it all was a settlement act. So there were some bills to address pieces of this submitted. There were some bills to repeal the whole thing. And the, the best solution seemed to be, you know, to meet with tribal leadership and kind of figure out where we wanted to go together. So then Speaker Sarah Gideon and Senate President Troy Jackson, who's still serving, met with tribal leadership, uh, the chiefs and vice chiefs, Representative Newell and myself. And this idea was formed to create a task force. And sorry, my dog just walked by with my partner. <laughs> she looked cute. Um, so this task force, you know, was the result of a resolution passed and, and everybody, you know, got on board and was excited about it. And it was tribal chiefs, uh, lawmakers, bipartisan group of lawmakers, the current uh, and the then chairs of the Judiciary Committee served as the chairs of the task force. And that was former 
Senator Mike Carpenter and former representative, now Senator Donna Bailey. They were the chairs of the task force. There was also non-voting members in the attorney general's office and the governor's office. And I wanna say that, there's my doggy, <laughs> that this task force was one of the most, I think, probably successful collaborations between the state of Maine and tribal leaders. So there were six or seven sessions, um, chiefs and, and vice chiefs sat on this and, and were very much involved in, in all of the kind of educating and, um, you know, digging up a lot of good information about federal Indian law, about the Settlement Act, and getting all of this information to Maine lawmakers. And, you know, Maine lawmakers are at a disadvantage because the Settlement Act has been sort of the law of the land since 1980. So it's like, if, if this is state Indian law, why do we need to learn about federal Indian law? This, this is how we deal with tribes as this document. So there was this real push to utilize tribal attorneys and tribal leaders to do a lot of educating of these lawmakers. And, and I think it really paid off. There was a slate of recommendations, um, you know, passed through consensus at the end of this process that dealt with everything from criminal jurisdiction, civil jurisdiction, land acquisition, taxation, gaming, which we'll get into, it's, it's really its own monster, <laughs> tribal gaming in the state of Maine. Uh, but that was a recommendation, uh, you know, land, I said that right, fish, natural resources, fish and game. And, and so just this really lovely, comprehensive look at all of the areas where the relationship is failing because of the interpretation of the Settlement Act by the state of Maine. Um, so these consensus recommendations were put into a bill and that was LD 2094 in the 129th legislature. And I believe then Representative Donna Bailey was the, the main sponsor of that bill. So 2094 had a lot of great momentum and it died with the COVID pandemic. <laughs> uh, we got votes out of the Judiciary Committee. There were two days of public hearings in Augusta uh, and the process was, was fairly sophisticated. Um, you know, the, the public hearings would break down the different subject matter into, you know, if you only wanted to testify in taxation, if you only wanted to talk about fish and game, you know, there were different times you could come. And, and another important piece of, of 2094 and later this bill now was access to those federal beneficial acts. So that's included as well in this large bill. So with the end of, of the 129th kind of abruptly due to the pandemic, we regrouped and uh, reformed this bill into 1626 with a couple of changes. So one change is a happy change. <laughs> one of the recommendations of the task force was to implement Violence Against Women Act jurisdiction for the tribes in Maine and the tribal courts. So currently that's Penobscot and Passamaquoddy. We were able to take that out or, or kind of run it parallel in that former session uh, as LD 766. And after a lot of negotiation with the governor's office and in the judiciary committee, we were able to pass um, that bill into law. So currently Penobscot and Passamaquoddy are able to um, implement VAWA jurisdiction in our communities. And this was a good example of 
one of those federal laws that was really causing hardship not being able to have access to it. So Violence Against Women Act jurisdiction has to do with if we have a domestic violence crime on tribal territory and the perpetrator is not a tribal member, we could not bring them into tribal court. Um, and that set up a lot of heartache and trauma, injustice, and just made these cases a whole lot harder to, to ever kind of get resolved for the victims. So thankfully, that was passed, and that's not part of the current bill because we've we've accomplished that in state statute. Also, um, good news that the federal version of Violence Against Women Act currently may be working its way through the Senate, hopefully, <laughs> does have the main tribes named in it. Um, so even if we weren't able to do that state statute, we would hopefully get a federal remedy at some point. And that is a, a provision of that settlement act as well. If we are able to get specifically named in these acts, um, we can have access to them, but that's been very, very hard to do. And I think out of 151 acts, I, I'm not completely sure, but, but VAWA might be among the first that we were able to do that on. So where was I? <laughs> uh, another change, we took out the gaming recommendation and ran it as its own bill. And that was also a story that I'll get into after <laughs> I finish up on 1626, because it's uh, it, it has good ties to how we're going to wrap up this discussion. So 1626 as it stands it is, is a large bill. It's sponsored by Assistant Majority Leader uh, Representative Rachel Talbot Ross. And I, I can't say enough the fierce determination and power and just inspirational everything <laughs> that, that uh, Rachel Talbot Ross exhibits in, in all areas of her work. And we are so lucky to have her uh, in this fight with us. And the bill seems large in scope, but it really has only a couple of main points to it. I, I think in, in one bucket, we have that jurisdictional piece of, you know, we want to expand tribal jurisdiction over tribal lands, waters, resources, people. Uh, and then the other piece is having access to that federal legislation. And one of the things that we've really stressed throughout all of this is that Maine is really unique in the way the state deals with the tribes. So in other states, every other state, the tribes have a relationship with the federal government that supersedes anything to do with the state. So because of this Land Claim Settlement Act, we've kind of had the state be a very involved player in tribal matters when in other places, every other place, it's the tribe and the federal government have that relationship and they kind of you know, interact with the state as sovereigns. So in Maine, it's more of an interaction of you know, that the state acts very paternalistic and sees tribes as wards of the state. So in both of those areas of the bill, that's the mindset that we're trying to kind of overcome. Um, and that's been tough. <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the, the sticking points for folks on this. It's, you know, if it they see, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And the tribes have really had to come to the table and say, it is broken and we need to fix it together. So that's been one of our main messages. I've been talking a whole lot this week, so thank you for <laughs> bearing with my scratchy voice. Um, 
1626, you know, we, we had the hearing this past week. And uh, I think, you know, it's no secret we have some opposition um, from the governor's office to the large bill 1626. And that can feel frustrating. You know, it can feel like, you know, if we're looking at opposition from kind of the ultimate person in charge, why are we working so hard? And, you know, those feelings can really, you know, make you wrestle with yourself and try to find that hope. And I think after the hearing this past week, it, it was easy to find a lot of hope. I think, you know, no matter how this all unfolds, seeing the support we had from so many corners of Maine, you know, we started this Wabanaki Alliance Coalition as religious groups, faith groups, and you've all been amazing and in a huge part of our journey, um, an environmental organization. And we've grown it, you know, thanks to so many of you and so many people in our weekly calls and on the Wabanaki Alliance website. Um, we've grown it to people that, that we probably don't even know and have never met. Uh, they're sending in testimony and they're really caring about these issues. And, you know, last week, Chief Maggie Dana from the um, Sabaic Passamaquoddy tribe, she was thanking supporters and said, you know, you guys don't have to do this for us. <laughs> and I think that's such a good thing to remember that so much of, you know, the work of good allyship and the work of good policymaking and the work of, of good in general, you know, it, it's done kind of beyond the borders of yourselves, of your own families, of your own communities, your own churches. Um, and, and I think that, that that's where real change, real momentum and real progress happens as a society. And even though none of that work, you know, you may not be at the center of it when you're advancing everyone for the common good, that all comes back to you in time. And that's the feeling I took from Tuesday. It, you know, it was a lot of you know, a lot of the same messaging spoken by so many different voices. And I think that there's so much power in that. You know, you can hear 50 tribal members say, the settlement act's horrible <laughs> and, and we don't like it and it hasn't worked and we want to change it. Um, you know, we want fairness, we want equity, we want a, an equal seat at the table. When you hear that accompanied by people from rural Maine, from Southern Maine, from Northern Maine, from all these different corners of our state together, it presents such a powerful and unified voice. And, and I really can't say enough how thankful we are. So in this fuzzy time between the public hearing and the work session and the further legislative process, um, you know, I, I think it's okay to, to stop and reflect on, on the, you know, the goodness that's brought us to this point. And at the end of the day, you know, I don't know what tribal state relations will look like should this effort not succeed, but I know that that we've made a real mark in history around all of these issues. And I'll talk for a few more minutes about the gaming bill. Um, and then I'll pause. <laughs> I think that works out time-wise. So I think the gaming bill is important to talk about as we look to kind of what happens next. So we took the tribal gaming recommendation out of the larger omnibus bill. And, and we did this for strategy reasons. And, um, you know, it, it did go to a different committee at first. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, like I said, it's kind of its own thing. So the task force recommendation 
was based on the idea that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act should apply to tribes in Maine. So IGRA, as it's called, uh, I think a lot of times people think it's this like blanket authorization, like, you know, here's a magic wand, all you tribes can build casinos type thing. But it's actually a restrictive act. Um, it came about because tribes were having access to gaming and building casinos, and then there was conflict with their states. So what IGRA does is it allows tribes to negotiate compacts around gaming with the state and pursue, you know, any class of gaming. There's class uh, one, two, three of gaming, and then three is like your casino, slot machine, table game type things. Um, so the recommendation essentially said IGRA should apply to tribes in Maine. And, and that was the language we took out and ran as a bill sponsored by Representative Ben Collings out of Portland, and that was LD 554. So 554 had a bright and shiny future, <laughs> made it through committee, House and Senate and was vetoed by the governor. And in the governor's you know, issues with this bill and in her veto message, it was expressed that, you know, this administration would like tribal gaming to look like something done in state statute, kind of under state control. And, uh, you know, there was concerns about where a casino might be, what tribes would be involved, um, where the revenue would go. And I think that's an important philosophical distinction to point out where the recommendation that the task force came up with was, you know, we would like the self-determination and sovereignty of choosing these, you know, how we want to conduct gaming and have access to IGRA. Whereas the other philosophy is kind of this, you know, continuing attitude of the tribes will be under the state. Uh, and this is how, you know, gaming will look like as dictated by Maine. So I think thinking about that, you know, conflict, it, it really points to the fact that we still have a lot of education to do. We still have a lot of work to do around, you know, explaining why federal Indian law should be the backstop for tribes in Maine because we are federally recognized tribal nations. And that's exactly the theme throughout LD 1626. And that is really what we are trying to accomplish um, in this legislative session. So I'm checking my notes and I, I think I've <laughs> taken us pretty far here. And, and I will uh, pause here for some questions or some other speakers. So thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Dana. Um, we had next our, as a speaker, uh, John Hennessy, about what we can do. I don't know, John, if you want to jump right into it or if you think that there's a question we might want to proceed with first. I saw a couple of the questions, Eleanor, so I'd go there first. Okay, thank you. I see one that I can jump right into from, um, I just found them, sorry. Great, <laughs> yeah. I got them now. Uh, why does VAWA law only apply to Penobscot and Passamaquoddy this time? It's because our communities have tribal courts. Um, and I think that there's plenty of language um, in the law that in the future we could amend that if other tribes get tribal courts, we, we could certainly pull them into that. Um, and I believe there's a question about the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. 
Yes. Um, so the Manning and Tribal State Commission, that's a great question. This was created by the Land Claims Settlement Act. And the idea is it, it's a conflict resolution um, body. So it has representatives from the tribes, representatives from the state. And, it, you know, it hasn't worked <laughs> all that well in the sense where, you know, they, they have done numerous um, sessions and studies of the Settlement Act. There was a report from Suffolk University. Um, there were tribal state work groups. And, and MITSIC has, to its credit, worked very hard over the years uh, to, to make recommended, recommended changes and to kind of, you know, do its job and, and resolve these conflicts. And, and I truly don't think the state has supported it or, or really given it enough credence. Um, so, so it hasn't been successful in actually implementing anything, but the folks that have served on MITSIC, uh, it's not for lack of trying. I, I think everyone tried very hard and, and this settlement act has been studied numerous times. And, and I think that's why, you know, if this effort doesn't work, it, it might be challenging to get buy-in from our communities that we should keep going back and trying to keep working with the state. So that's a really good um, question. And then the, the million dollar question, <laughs> what are the governor's objections to this bill and why? And I, I wish I could give a very specific answer, but the governor hasn't been all that specific. Um, it's that the, the bill is too broad, it's too sweeping. It's, um, you know, there, there's fears that if this bill went through, you know, um, the state couldn't change it in the future because it would need to go through a federal process. So there's, you know, I, I, I can't speak for the governor and, and I'm not kind of inside her mind on this, but I, I do think there's, there's a fear of losing control and that, um, you know, Maine, might somehow lose out if the tribes have this increased jurisdiction. So how we have countered a lot of those fears is pointing to all the other tribes in the country that are living under conditions like we're trying to create in 1626 and the sky hasn't fallen and the, the tribes haven't you know, taken over the state and stolen all the land back, <laughs> like some of the, the rumors that we hear. So I, I think it, it's easy enough to dispel a lot of these fears. And I certainly hope that the governor, you know, listens with her heart to the, you know, thousands of Mainers speaking out on behalf of the tribes. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna let John go ahead before then we proceed with more questions. Okay. John Hennessy. We'll, we'll give them best a, a break to, to see. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to pick up on uh, the remarkable week of, of public hearings on, on not only 1626, but several other bills related to the tribes. I've, uh, I've been working in Augusta for more than 20 years, and I've never, with, with perhaps the one exception being the marriage equality uh, public hearing at the Civic Center, I've never seen something so well orchestrated, so, so clearly organized to, to give the message loudly and clearly that this was something that needed to happen and it needs to happen now. I think everyone involved in the public hearing should be very, very proud of how 
how it was was executed. Uh, I watched for I, I think about six hours all told, and uh, even the the legislators who sometimes because we're all still on Zoom that has its pluses and its minuses. But I watched the the the, the facial expression of the legislatures and and they were engaged. They were listening. They were truly, truly, not all of them, most of them were listening, and it was very, very powerful. And that's where I want to pick up and say that that's the next opportunity for us is to reach out. Like I don't know how many of the 1,700 plus testimonies came from Episcopalians, but I'm going to guess a good number. And it's now it's time to shift our energy to our state representatives and state, and I'll get to the governor later. Um, but to re to reformat uh, the testimony that you provided of for sixteen twenty six and and put it in an email to your to your state rep and your state senator, or dare I say it, the old fashioned way, write them a letter and put it in the post office. Put it put a stamp on it. It'll take a week, maybe ten days, but do that, and let's start building a, a sea of momentum. To, to let people know that we're supporting this bill. And I'm saying that we do this for people, even if we know they're supporters of the bill. It's very, very important that everyone knows that people of faith all around the state of Maine are watching this issue for all the reasons that we've talked about this, this afternoon already, and that we see this through. Then reach out to the governor. I'm going to put the um, contact information for the governor's office in the chat and my advice there to just put your thoughts respectfully in an email. Pick up the telephone. That's that's the direct line to the governor's office. It's a public number. Share your point of view respectfully with whoever answers the phone or write the governor a letter. We know this governor loves the printed word. Put your thoughts, put your emotions, put your feelings into a letter to the governor and let's flood her office with letters, emails, phone calls, all of the above to make sure that she knows that we're watching and that we're praying and that we're hoping that this comes to the conclusion that the tribes have been looking for for 40 plus years. I'll stop there. And if you have any specific questions, uh, I'd be glad to answer them. Thank you, John. I'm going back to look through the, uh, you answered how do we best communicate our support to the governor. And I guess I will ask Ambassador Dana, Molly and Dana, if you have any uh, anything to add to how we can affect the governor. I think, you know, my first thought when John started talking was I really wanted to recognize the uh, Judiciary Committee chairs. Uh, so that's Representative Tom Harnett and Senator Ann Carney. Uh, I think that they've been, you know, they, they've given more of themselves to this than folks really know that they, they've done. They've really dedicated themselves to learning about these issues. And, and nurturing this bill through a very delicate process. So, so I do want to extend my thanks to them, as well as my thanks to Representative Rena Newell, who sits on the Judiciary Committee, 
which can't be easy at times, you know, hearing some of some of the questions about this legislation and then kind of, you know, that the scrutiny and the, um, you know, pointed language sometimes at, at any tribal bill that comes before them. So I, I do want to, uh, you know, recognize those folks that as we talk about legislative action and, and I'm really glad that this effort has been shepherded by the leadership in that committee. So how do we affect the governor? <laughs> um, I find that the, the governor is very strong in her views that, that she really cares about Maine. Um, and, and I think that, that that might be a place where we can talk about you know, rural Maine and, uh, and, and these areas that would also benefit from 1626. And I think that, you know, talking about how the tribes employ folks in surrounding communities and that some of these provisions, you know, would definitely lift up everyone. You know, I serve on um, the Maine Climate Council. I was appointed by the governor to the Maine Climate Council. And part of my work there is co-chairing a subcommittee on equity. And we released our first report. And a big part of that report is talking about, you know, we have this great, bold climate action plan, which I really do like. Um, I think it came out wonderful. And that those goals will not be met if we're not bringing everyone along. So I think a good message to send about 1626 is that you can have all these grand plans for the state of Maine and you can protect the interests of Maine. But if you're not looking out for some of the most marginalized and oppressed populations in your state, you will not meet those goals. Um, you will not progress as a whole society. So I think it's bigger than, you know, control or jurisdiction over tribes and tribal lands. I, I think it really needs to, you know, encompass this larger discussion of, you know, are you really holding space for all citizens in Maine? And I think that's a good message to send to the governor. Thank you. Yes, that sounds right. And I, in addition, I see a, a question about what's the best way, or I'm sorry, um, uh, to turn the governor around. I just want to remind people or let them know that there are a lot of resources at the Wabanaki Alliance website. And there's a take action tab that gives you a lot of information for talking points and, and whom to, to contact. And a question, is there enough legislative support for LD 1626 to override a veto by the governor? Well, that's part of our strategy <laughs> is thinking about that potential outcome and and it's an uphill battle for sure and and i think that um our coalition i can't speak enough to the effort and blood sweat and tears that so many people throughout these organizations that the webinaki alliance has kind of um you know collected and partnered with the, you know the effort they're putting in is just tremendous you spoke about the website uh, that website is, is mostly maintained and updated by members of our coalition. And so when you see that this beautiful toolkit and frequently asked questions and, and um, you know, press updates, so much of that is done by people who just care about this work and about tribal sovereignty. So, you know, I think 
as we think about moving forward, you know, we have a, a huge, powerful team. They're all reaching out to legislators, and, and so can you. I, I think the best way to think about that veto-proof majority scenario that we would obviously love is, is looking at those numbers, looking at who your representative and senate, senator are, um, you know, and, and really trying to, to pull in that support. I, I think you know, it's no secret we have more Democrat than Republican support. So if you know Republican that, you know, this self-determination and more limited government philosophy might appeal to them, you know, give them a call and, and see if, if they would think about being in favor of 1626. Thank you. Thank you. And putting together some questions here, um, maybe we'll give um, Ambassador Dana a break, <laughs> John, if you could answer about deadlines. Um, there's a question about deadline for written testimony, which is passed for LD 1626, but maybe other bills and but other deadlines about contacting our representatives and governor. I think we have until the until the work session and there's a vote out of committee, we have that much time. We have probably two weeks to reach out to our individual legislators across the state before any votes are start start to be uh, taken. Uh, Rep Ambassador Dana said, you know, focusing on the Judiciary Committee, that's where the first vote will be. And the four or five Republicans on that um, committee uh, should get a little extra love from, from people of faith to make sure that they, that, uh, as Ambassador said, uh, why, the, why, why conservatives should support this uh, concept of tribal sovereignty. Once, once it goes through the once it goes through the judiciary committee, then it will go to the floor of the house. And you know the the legislature is supposed to adjourn by the twentieth of April, give or take. Uh, so it's we 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 have time. We still have time to make a difference. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be recorded as public testimony now. I don't even know if the if if the tribe if all the people uh, crashed the system yet or not. I've never seen so much testimony. But seriously. The, the, the focus should be on your individual state rep and state senator and, and the governor uh, in, the, in that order at this moment in time. Thank you, John. Um, there's a number of questions. It's hard to choose. I'm gonna jump around a little bit, um, but for an overview, what percentage of Maine's land is held by tribal nations? So this is a great question to bring up because it's not a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a very small percentage. Um, and, and this is important to talk about as well because the part of the Settlement Act in 1980, it's important to understand that the state of Maine gave no money in the Settlement Act. They were very clear that they did not wanna spend a dime um, to, to, to you know, give anything back to tribes. So what happened was the tribes received funds, but those funds were held in trust by the federal government and uh, mostly used for programming and to buy por uh, parcels of land to have an, in a few different categories, um, which are reservation land, which we don't need to buy. That's our, our communities where, um, you know, we reside and, and our municipal centers are. There's fee land, which is just like, like anybody would would own a house or land, uh, you, you own it outright as fee. And, and on fee land, um, you know, there, there's no tribal jurisdiction and it's subject to property taxes by the state of Maine. And then there's trust land. And this is land 
that is held in trust by the federal government where you have enhanced tribal jurisdiction and um, you know, and, and the taxing provisions uh, that the tribe controls rather than the state. And that's a very rough non-attorney <laughs> breakdown of those three types of land. But um, so the Settlement Act laid out parameters for the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot tribes to buy back 150,000 acres of land uh, in Maine to eventually put into trust. Neither tribe has accomplished that, and it, it's not for lack of trying. So a lot of these parcels, you know, you can't buy land unless you have a willing seller. And a lot of times over the years, tribes have run into roadblocks with, you know, the, the land being clear-cutted before we were supposed to buy it, or, or parties backing out or backing down. So a lot of these you know, things have been out of our control. So I, I think you hear the narrative sometime, you know, well, each tribe has 150,000 acres of trust land. That's what was agreed to. It was agreed to, but it didn't happen. So when you look at the map of the state of Maine, I, I'm not sure if it's on the Wabanaki Alliance website, but we use it sometimes in presentations. Um, there's a map that shows where these tribal lands are. And, uh, you know, neither tribe has reached their full amount of trust land status. And even the, the fee blocks are, are quite small when you look at the whole state. So should this law passed, were passed 1626, or should this bill pass into law, we're talking about these jurisdictional changes would only occur on reservation, or well, not even reservation, really, it would occur on those trust land parcels. So that's where we would have kind of enhanced jurisdiction. So I, I hear some of these rumors of, you know, the tribe's going to try to take two thirds of the state back and all this sort of thing. And, and that really couldn't be further from reality. You know, we couldn't go build casinos all through Portland. We couldn't just buy a whole town if we wanted to. We couldn't, uh, you know, kick people off huge pieces of land that there's there's processes around all of this and and really understanding where the lands are and what those jurisdictional changes would actually look like in reality and, and they wouldn't really affect the everyday manner, I think that's all really good to understand. Oh, you're muted. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking at the question by June and Royce Moot at 257 and wondering if this answered everything. Um, we've heard the objection that tribes would be able to buy back land anywhere. Um, if so, how would they, if not true, how would tribes buy back land in Maine? Their remaining 110,000 acres approved by the 300,000 in the 1980 Act. All right, I just found it as well. And that's a meaty question. So I'm giving another read. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so the short answer is none of that is anything to be afraid of. There, there are um, guidelines for where the tribes can buy land. We certainly couldn't go, you know, by the town of Orono or Brunswick. Um, you know, there's, there's parameters around, you know, where and what these deals would look like. And if not, you have, yeah, and I think, you know, 
something else I should mention is in the last session, one of the bills that we did get through into law is a bill that so in the Settlement Act, it sets timelines for how long the tribes have to put land into trust to reach that full amount of trust land. And since we haven't done it, there was a bill put in to extend that time limit. And Representative Rena Newell introduced a committee amendment, uh, basically doing away with those time restrictions. So thankfully, we have that in place. So, um, you know, even if 1626 doesn't pass, uh, we do have some wiggle room on how long it will take us <laughs> to to amass that that trust land. But but 1626 is really important because it addresses that land acquisition and land into trust um, process, which I won't pretend to know all the details of. But I, I do I can tell you that um, it's complicated. Land into trust takes place with the federal government and Department of Interior. Uh, there is moments of consultation with the state and surrounding municipalities and and it really wouldn't look like a huge seizure of large pieces of land by the tribes thank you um we have other questions along that line but i want to go back first to john mattis's question um what can we do within our parishes and communities to educate our neighbors about these issues? If the, I know we've talked about some things, but uh, many of us here are, are looking for every way possible to spread the word. So if there are other things to mention, I'm not sure that there are at this point. Please, Carrie. I just, I want to um, wonder if, if somebody on the panel can speak more to the work that um, I think it's Maine Wabanaki Reach, we've done looked into some of their educational um, resources for churches and for groups. And I'm not really qualified to speak. I don't know enough about it to really speak about that, but maybe John or Ambassador Dana does about what those might be opportunities there for education um, for our churches programming. Yeah, I would absolutely recommend uh, Wabanaki Reach for, for your churches and different groups in your community. They do trainings around, you know, really breaking down a lot of that defensiveness that, that comes around these topics. And they do so in a way, you know, recognizing the humanity of all, but also the reality of all, you know, looking at the intergenerational trauma of Abenaki people, also the, the triumphs and the resilience, and, and really inviting others into that story without, you know, worrying about feeling guilty or defensive because it's just presented as, as fact. And, and like, you know, how do we go forward together? So I would certainly, you know, that that's a different kind of, um, silo than, than I work in on policy and all of that. But I think Wabanaki Reach does a good job at, at talking to that, that shared humanity and, and that human spirit and, uh, and grappling with some really tough topics, you know, and feeling, I, I think sometimes, you know, people in not in tribal communities feel attacked or, you know, my ancestors did that, not me, you know, why should I have to care about this? And Mabinaki Reach does a really good job of breaking down um, a lot of those barriers to learning and growing. Thank you. And there's a, a message in our chat as well from John Diefenbacher Crawl. The Episcopal Committee on Indian Relations is, is a resource to any parish in the diocese, including providing guest preachers. 
Um, so we have an Episcopal resource for those of us here who are Episcopalians. I am thinking there's at least one question about the gaming, um, maybe a little bit more explanation about how that would work or what, what would that look like? What would tribes be able to do? And I'm trying to find that question. I read it a little while ago. I can get started on, on that if you like, and then because um, there, there's probably more to say about that. So there's there's been a, a parallel process here, and that is negotiations between the governor's office with assistance from the attorney general's office um, and tribal leaders and, and um, attorneys. And this kind of came about after the governor vetoed the gaming bill. She had some ideas about you know areas she may want to work on with the tribes even though she you know couldn't fully support 1626 and one of these areas was gaming and, and trying to um, you know see a path forward where the state and the tribes can you know work on gaming together so the tribal idea and you know way that we would like to go forward and the recommendation of the task force would to but to have be to have the Indian Game Regulatory Act apply to tribes in Maine. And basically what that would look like is the tribes individually uh, or collectively, if they chose to, could negotiate a state compact around gaming um, with the state. So that so in that compact negotiation, federal Indian law would be the backstop for all of these efforts. And that would outline if this would be a bricks and mortar effort you know, who would build a casino on what tribal land, you know, that casino would be on, if more than one tribe would want to get in on it, what the revenue sharing would look like. So it's hard to say, well, this is what it would look like, because that would all kind of, um, you know, happen but beforehand, before anything could, could progress. And that's a really important provision in IGRA, is having that involvement and that collaboration. So where we are at currently is LD 585 is uh, a bill that Representative Rachel Talbot Ross had sponsored and carried over with 1626, and it originally dealt with extending Tribal Law and Order Act provisions to the tribes, which was uh, an accompanying piece of her uh, VAWA bill. So instead, <laughs> through you know, legislative gymnastics, uh, 585 has been amended to include the provisions uh, that the governor want, wanted to work with the tribes on. Make sure I said that all right. So those provisions are gaming. And right now that gaming looks like exclusivity to online um, mobile betting for tribes. And this is probably more detail <laughs> than we all really need, but that's what it looks like currently. And, uh, and taxation, you know, and, and, and consultation or collaboration. So all of these things would benefit tribes and we testified in support and we'll think we're thankful for the dialogue with the governor, um, but we're very much behind 1626. But something interesting, you know, happened in the public hearing on Thursday for LD 585, and that was a real deep dive into the history of tribal gaming in Maine. And, you know, because we don't have access to IGRA, when we wanted to expand gaming efforts, it had to go to state referendum. 
And as many of you are probably aware, every state referendum we've tried to pursue has failed quite miserably. <laughs> um, but state referendum has been a process useful for other interests, um, you know, and, and they voted to expand gaming in Bangor and Oxford, where the two casinos are. And it's important to note about Bangor that the state referendum approved the um, slot machines at the raceway and then, um, you know, changing a law later on allowed them to have table games in a full casino. So, <laughs> you know, the, the message has been sent to tribes that Maine is okay with expanding gaming as long as tribes aren't doing it or benefiting from it. So it's, it's a tricky issue. I know that it gets into a moral dilemma or an ethical dilemma for folks. And it's not an industry I'm all that fond of. I go to a lot of tribal events that are held at tribal casinos. I don't feel great <laughs> being there. Um, you know, it, it's not a place I'd like to be, but I, I do really, agree that it is an important part of tribal sovereignty to have access to all those federal acts. And who knows, maybe if we got access to ICRA, started to negotiate this compact, we found it not to be viable or something we wanted to get into. Um, so it's not a given that tribes would, would immediately and, and kind of, you know, ferociously pursue casino gambling. It's just that we want to have the choice. Um, we, we want to be able to make that choice for ourselves. Thank you, thank you. Um, and there's a question here about a curriculum in schools that teach about Maine indigenous people. Is there one, is this also something, this is a, more of a, a long-term assistance than the current legislation, but um, that indigenous history is adequately taught here. Do you know about that? I, I can speak to that. Um, so back in 2001, Representative Donna Loring from Scott Nation was able to pass a Wabanaki Studies um, bill that passed into law. And this essentially, you know, is on the books as requiring the teaching of Wabanaki Studies in Maine public schools. And, you know, she did this, you know, in a time where it was it was tough to get things like this through, you know, it, it wasn't an easy sell for folks. And, and I think, you know, the fact that we have this law is, is really wonderful and a great start. The issue with this law was that it was very unlikely to pass if it had a fiscal note. So there was no kind of mechanism to hold the state to it from a financial standpoint. And, you know, and due to that, and I think a general, you know, apathy combined with teachers already being overwhelmed and school districts not knowing how to implement these things, uh, all this has combined over the past, you know, 20 years or so to, you know, a situation where this law hasn't lived up to its full potential. So thankfully, um, you know, Portland Public Schools, un you know, undertook a huge you know, chunk of this work and really stepped up to try to create, you know, a new trend around this, um, you know, Wabanaki Studies curriculum. And they've been working diligently for a couple of years and, and I've reviewed a lot of their work and it's just wonderful. And I should say that Penobscot Nation, you know, in the early 2000s probably uh, created curriculum uh, as have the other tribes, I believe. And they've done kind of teach the teacher trainings and, uh, and, and the resources are definitely out there. So I would love to see, you know, more of a partnership around this and, and getting this, 
great information to schools because it certainly makes all of our jobs easier, you know, when Mainers are educated and aware. And I think I saw a question in the Q&A about, you know, how many tribes are there in Maine and where are they? So really, you know, basic things like that. And I can answer that now. <laughs> that would be helpful. Um, you know, re really basic things like, like that could be taught in public schools. So there are um, four federally recognized tribal nations in Maine and five communities. The Penobscot Nation, where I live, is centrally located. We're kind of near Bangor. Uh, the Passamaquoddy is the largest tribe. And they have two reservation communities, one at Sabayak or Pleasant Point, and the other at Madaknigook or Indian Township. And they're over in Washington County. Then we have the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians um, in Holton, and then the Arusik Band of Micmac Indians. So, and when I say federally recognized tribe, that means that the tribes have met membership criteria and, and genealogy and, and sort of, um, you know, there's a checklist from the federal government that we, you know, we've met and, and that's, um, you know, we, we should have a nice robust relationship with the federal government because of that, but that's been really undermined by um, the Settlement Act. Thank you. And are there other tribes that aren't federally recognized that exist? Yeah. There are um, Abenaki folks that, you know, this is their ancestral homeland as well. They were displaced, but they still live here. They don't have um, a recognized community in Maine, but they do in Canada. And, you know, at one point in Maine, there were upwards of 20 distinct tribal nations. And due to, you know, colonization and, you know, encroachment on our lands and, and infliction of diseases and, and, and genocide, um, you know, this is what we have left. Thank you. Um, Can I jump in for a second? Please. I, I don't know if you're seeing the question, but Ambassador, there's a, a great deal of a attention about the bill that we read about from Representative Golden and that Shelley Pingree also co-sponsored at the federal level. Are you able to speak to how that might interact with uh, 1626? Yes, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, so we are really happy that Representative Golden uh, has undertaken a very thoughtful and focused effort to try to advance tribal sovereignty. And what he's done is I've spoken a little bit about how we don't have access to those federal laws. He's uh, crafted legislation that essentially says from this point forward, main tribes you know, will be included in these federal laws, that they, they will impact um, Maine tribes and we'll be able to access them and benefit from them. And uh, this is, you know, it, it would be great to have, you know, the wave of a wand and have all of those federal acts that we've missed out on apply to us. But I feel like, you know, Chief Francis was saying last week, you know, if, if our kids born right now can move forward, not under, you know, that, that same provision we've been living under and have access to these laws and, and resources in our communities and um, enhanced jurisdiction in some areas, uh, that, that feels like a whole lot of progress. So we're very happy for that effort. It just happened to drop as 1626 is moving through. It certainly wasn't on purpose or intentional. That's just the, the legislative fate of things. Um, and, and I think that, you know, should 1626 pass, we would have that provision where the federal laws would apply to, to Maine tribes. So uh, in a sense, the, the federal law 
wouldn't be as needed. However, the federal law, I think, is an important backstop, you know, if we don't get 1626 through. And I also think it sets a really good precedent uh, with working with our federal delegation uh, that they can bring very important and, and needed issues from our communities to that level, because that's really where our relationship um, should take place. And that's how it should look. Thank you. And uh, there's an earlier question about, is there a place to see a list of the federal laws and acts that Maine tribes have missed out on because of the Settlement Act? There is, and I don't have it handy, but I can send it to the organizers and maybe you can get it out to your um, membership for sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And I have noticed in the chat a, a point, there's probably more points. I haven't been able to read it all, but that, that bears holding up um, from Ormond Morton that to have, he said, our people, I'm going to assume that's tribal people elected to, to positions in the legislature, um, which I think is, just worth stating that that our work goes on after this, after LD 1626, as we move forward. And there's a question about, do you have some idea as to the amount of support among Republicans in the House? So we do have a Republican uh, co-sponsor of 1626 and uh, and there is some support. I think it's not overwhelming, but we've definitely made some connections with, with a few Republicans in the House and Senate that uh, you know agree that tribes should have this level of self-determination and also can see the benefits for rural Maine communities. Very good, thank you. Uh, no Question from Matt Bear Fowler. The federal law introduced by Golden would make all federal laws related to the tribes, even ones from the past, apply to Maine's tribes. Is that correct? It would only be uh, the laws passed from this point forward. Okay, thank you. Is there anything else that you would want us to know, Ambassador Dana, um, that's come up for you during this time of questions and answers and talking and reflecting? I saw another, um, I think it was in the chat, not the Q&A. Could you possibly speak about the Upstander Project and their Donland and Bounty Teachers Guides? And that's a really great point that goes along with that educational piece. So the Upstander Project are the filmmakers and, and educational folks that made the documentary Donland. And, and I'm sure a lot of people in this group have seen that. But that is, um, you know, taking a really hard look at the foster care system and, you know, in Maine DHS that was removing Wabanaki children from their homes, often with no due process or, or real reasoning, putting them into non-native foster homes and, and the kind of, um, you know, abuse and torment and trauma that took over the lives of these young people. And then at the end of that experience, um, you know, they're either out in the world or they're trying to reconnect with their tribal communities. And, and it just really, you know, the documentary does a great job of, of kind of weaving in some of the federal boarding school stories. I know that over the past couple of years, that's really come to light where we find unmarked graves of children at, at these residential schools in Canada and the in, uh, United States. 
And uh, so the, the team at Dawnland did a really good job of, of elevating the individual stories and, and the process of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Wabanaki people that happened in Maine. And it was a partnership um, you know, between the tribal people and the state. And um, you know, they, they had a work group and a commission. And, and I should note one of their recommendations was to support tribal sovereignty um, and, and that they saw that as a reparative piece as we talk about these um, traumatic stories. So Upstander, um, their follow-up project to that, and, and they, they won an Emmy for Donland, by the way, <laughs> um, just great folks doing great work. And they, they follow that up with, with a short film called Bounty. And you can watch it, I think, at any time at bountyfilm.org. And that features um, three Penobscot families. One of them is mine. <laughs> I'm in it with uh, my two daughters. And we are in the old state house in Boston where the Spencer Phipps proclamation was written. And this, uh, this proclamation was a call to the colonists of New England uh, in Massachusetts and you know, what we now know as Maine to basically go out and hunt down Penobscot people and turn in um, their scalps for bounty money from the government. So we sat in this room and read the proclamation with our children, talked about you know, the, the feelings around that and, and the history and kind of how we have persevered and, and moved forward. So it's obviously a heavy topic and, and, it's, and it's a good thing to talk about and, and it's good to really know this history in this place and time. And the uh, curriculum guide that goes with both of these films just does a really thorough, extensive and, and wonderful job at digging into not just you know, the, the, the trauma and the sadness and sort of the atrocities of history, but where Wabanaki folks are right now and, and kind of the issues that are important to us currently. Thank you so much. I think it's time to wrap up here. Yes, Carrie. I just want to say a couple of things. I'm not sure who's closing us, but I want to make sure and just say a couple of things before we close. Um, first of all, I, I think in listening to Ambassador Dana, I'm realizing um, how and what a, a great model you are. Thank you for speaking um, truth and love. And I can't imagine how deeply personal and painful some of this is. And to be able to do your work um, in a sort of civil discourse way is really incredible. And I think a real uh, model for us. And I just wanna say how much I appreciate that. Um, I also want to thank Annette Sakabasin again. We had some technical glitches and I don't think the audio was working with the Passamaquoddy translation, which um, I'm very sorry about, but just really thankful for Annette's willingness to be here with us today and trying to make that work. Um, so thank you for that. And, and thank you for everyone who's shared questions and I'm obviously passionate about this and wanting to, to continue this work. So. Just wanted to say those thank yous. Thank you, Carrie. Yes, there are many thank yous to be said here. There's been a lot of behind the scenes work. Um, Scott Klinger has been a wonderful with the tech work and the time and John Mattis in uh, organizing us. And thank you to Carrie and John and our interpreters, Mara and Merrill and to Annette, thank you. Um, and also to you, Reese, who's there in the 
a background helping us technologically, but most especially to you, Ambassador Molly and Dana. I would like to close now um, with a prayer. Um, and I echo what Carrie said to Ambassador Dana. Um, you are a wonderful example to all of us. And as we begin, I would like to begin with a moment of silence as to recognize the true gravity of injustice that has been done to the Wabanaki. The reason we are here today is because of a legacy of colonization and genocide. So first, I'd like to take a few moments as we just sit with that. Now I pray, most holy one, we are eternally grateful for your presence in our lives, in this community, for your love and for your inspiration to serve you by working for justice for all. I'm mindful of all that we've heard here today, the importance of telling stories, of healing, of hearing stories. All this is a great reminder that we are called to honor the human dignity of every single person. And the reminder that everything is connected, our lives each with one another and with this planet. We came together today to, to create action and in so doing, we also find hope. Let us act on that hope. Let us be allies. Let us go forth serving you through action in our land. Amen. Thank you everyone for being with us today. Thank you for listening to the Faith in Maine podcast brought to you by the Episcopal Diocese of Maine. If you like this podcast, please leave a review and rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That helps us spread God's word even further. Thank you.